thank you, Joe, and uh, thank you for being here. And we'll try and um, have a conversation together. Um, I'm here to. Um, I, I don't have a, you know, a, a thesis or a message or anything I particularly want to say, but, uh, and I think that's the very nature of being a cartoonist. You sort of start with a blank piece of paper and you don't know what the heck is going to happen on that piece of paper. So I really enjoy this kind of, well, I sort of enjoy uh, just, you know, finding what we can find together, I hope, and but of course I have to lead the way. Um, so I'll say something that I said uh, yesterday. There was another event like this yesterday and I'm here and I, I always find it dreadful. I, I don't want to repeat what I said yesterday for some reason. That's also in the nature of a cartoonist. But, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be realistic and try. And, but I am reminded... Uh, you know, I'm not being in conversation with another person. I want to be with you and um, and myself too, <laughs> which is uh, sometimes not easy. But um, I'm reminded of Helen Garner, who was about a friend, Helen Garner, a writer who who was um, about to go on stage with a conversation partner, who said to her, Helen, um, what if what do you think the people have come here for? What do they want? And immediately Helen said, I think they want to see me spill my guts. <laughs> <And> <laughs> so, Helen. But um, so there's always that sort of aspect. I, I guess people come with curiosity and, um, and I'm sort of equally curious too. Uh, so um, I guess... Uh, a little bit of memoir is what might unfold, a bit of, um, you know, it's natural, how, how, why do I do this thing, whatever it is I do, uh, what is it like to be a cartoonist or a human being, and we all have that problem, but um, so, uh, and look, it's a story I've just been reminded of, it's a story, how did I get to be a cartoonist? Interestingly, and quite a bit of synchronicity and fluke, Joe here, Joe, I hope you won't mind if I tell a story about your father. I didn't understand. But before I was a cartoonist, I, I, did, I didn't do very well at school. Um, and I... When I worked in factories and things for a while and eventually I thought I'd like to be a filmmaker of some sort, a documentary filmmaker is what interested me. So by some fluke I got accepted into Swinburne uh, Film School as a rather older person and... Um, and it was poorly, it was very poorly uh, funded and um, resourced. And there were some beautiful lecturers. And one of them was Joe's father, Jim Harris. And Jim had done a bit of cartooning in his time. And uh, anyway, at some point in the year, and all the time I'd been making cartoons for what we called underground magazines and, uh, you know, small student publications. It was a time of... Uh, the Vietnam War and all that time of the 
late 60s and music, uh, kind of a bit of a cultural renaissance. It was quite a lively time and I'd been making cartoons on the basis of all that. And so I was offered work as a, as a full-time cartoonist on a new paper that The Age was starting called Newsday. It was an afternoon paper which was to take on the Herald. It was a tabloid. And I was perplexed. Do I keep on with this course and become a filmmaker or do I become a cartoonist? And I spoke to Jim and I said, Jim, what do you reckon? What do you think I might do? He said, get the hell out of here. Take the job as a paper. <laughs> he says, look, there's no future much in, in this place and in filmmaking as it was then. So I did. So... Um, so that's a very funny fluke. I only learned that, and um, and he, yeah, it was one of the points at which I decided I'd try that. And uh, you know, there's no there's no way you can learn to be a cartoonist. There's no school or no book on how to do it really that has any meaning. And uh, so you learn on the job, and it's a bit hair raising. Suddenly, being amongst journalists and the media and all tough guys, and, you know, there's been war correspondents and fashion writers and the terrifically strained, you know, crime writers, big mix of people, all pretty embittered and burnt out on one hand or idealistic and dreamy on the other hand. And uh, so, yeah, I learned on the job. And one day, I remember, early in the piece, I quickly was baptised into the whole thing when my deadline was 9.30 in the morning and there came the day when I had nothing. That terrible sort of moment you dread when... But you have to put something in and it's going to be printed and it's going to be judged and you're going to be humiliated publicly. So... Um, and I remember that day and I did what I'd seen in films. I'm, I bolted down to the Golden Age Hotel. This is about 10 o'clock in the morning, just about quarter to 10 in the morning. And I stood on the doorstep of the pub waiting for it to open at 10. And I was not much of a drinker, but I suddenly got it into my head, maybe a vodka and a beer. <laughs> <laughs> this will help. <laughs> So I suddenly realised, oh, me too. You know, I'm, I've become one of them. It was just an aberrant moment. I didn't continue down that path. Anyway, yeah, and I went back and I did another cartoon for the second edition and the vodka did help. <laughs> <laughs> but not enough to make me stay with it. Yeah, so that was that. Um, I do hope that someone will soon say something. Uh, I also do hope that nobody is too easily offended. I mean, we're living in very precarious times, as you know, about uh, offence and the brittleness and what you, how you will hurt people by some words that slip out of your mouth. And it's quite a strange atmosphere for someone with a, a like a cartoonist sensibility who's who loves 
or a humorist who loves sort of going close to the line. And, I mean, that's, the, that's where you want to work. You want to work where it's a little dangerous. Or, and that's where the philosophers traditionally work. They, you go to the edge of our understanding and you, you wonder and reflect. And if you're like that by nature, there's someone who's going to help me in a minute. <laughs> if you're like that by nature, I think this, what I've noticed at the times in which we live, at the moment, politically, um, philosophically, creatively, it's it's becoming constricted, horribly constricted, for the creative temperament or the wandering child, if you like. Not the wandering child, the wondering. You know, the wonderment. And we all are that, are we not, still? We, we lay our heads on the pillow at night and we wonder and... I don't know. So... To have that process, that lovely organic process of negative capability, not knowing, and to wonder and talk and grapple with ideas and take a risk. And humour is always, the best of it is always, is often risky. So long as the heart is of goodwill when you make, when you make this, you know, that's the point. And so much of this restriction seems so embittered and not of goodwill. It's very wagging the finger and I can't help but think of the Spanish Inquisition or something like that. Or, and this stream in human history of every now and again comes like the McCarthyist time of the 50s and pointing to people and naming people, denouncing. And I'm, we're watching this before our eyes all the time. And so much censorship is really happening. I'm experiencing it in my work. And it so saddens me to see journalists and editors who you would expect to be inquiring minds, open minds, open the whole venture of journalism is to look into. And now I think it's lost its confidence generally in many ways to enter into these things and hold questions open and um, and that's why that's why you would want to be in media or to speak in the public realm I'm sorry oh yes I can oh, uh, without going into too many details, I have been essentially told that don't go near the COVID question. You know, don't, because how can you not? How can you not? What sort of, I mean, it doesn't, and there's this new notion of a conspiracy theorist. It's become the new way of denouncing someone who just has intelligent questions without without I'm not taking any rigid position it's my work to raise little questions hopefully hopefully in a humorous way it's it's a way of negotiating different difficult things we do it all we make jokes with each other it's a way we find each other sometimes people you know you you'll have a joke with a stranger even and they'll have a joke back and little reciprocation reciprocated humor beautiful things ancient stuff all our forebears did it, I would think. And, uh, and this thing is dark humour, which is really important. People who work at the coalface know about dark humour. 
people caught in dreadful situations and often find a way of touching each other and opening something up with humour. So, so yes, I've made a couple of things, a couple of which were not dogmatic, ideological points. So I, I, I was just trying to open up possibilities and uh, can't do it. You are upsetting the work of the government. You know, the government's policy must not be. Um, people will get worried if I make raise a question. Um, I I saw something that upset me. Now, um, on a on a news item, uh, an event that happened in Ballarat here. Um, a young woman who was pregnant, she was a, a, about to be a, a mother again, and her husband, and she put a notice on social media announcing a protest movement, a peaceful protest, to ask questions about, you know, police and the heavy-handedness, what, what she felt, citizen's entitlement, she thought. Good for her. And um, her door was broken down by police. Uh, her home invaded. She was put in handcuffs. She was being utterly cooperative and peaceful. Now, I don't know, maybe I'm just incredibly old-fashioned, but... I, I thought, is this my country? Is this really happening? The woman presented no threat. She did something we've all been told was our right. You know, you can arrange a peaceful protest. And and she apparently advised people to abide by the, you know, the, the restrictions, etc., social distancing, etc., and she was very brutally treated, I thought. So I made a cartoon about it. Quite a simple one. Not too heavy-handed. No, can't go there. Can't speak up for the for the oppressed because she was at that point and she was terrified and outraged. So I don't know. That's my job. As the cartoonist Les Tanner told me when I was quite young, when I started, he said... You are to be um, a voice of the permanent opposition. <laughs> that is your job. You're not there to endorse the government policy. You're not there to tear it apart like a lunatic. Just there's another voice, You're an alternative voice. Often people mistake that to be my voice and they think all cartoons are somehow autobiographical. But they're not. Sometimes they're just philosophical. I'm not just speaking for myself. I'm kind of giving voice to something that I detect or sense in my fellow citizens, and I think that is a part of the traditional role. So there's an example, and that's very disheartening. It makes it hard to work. Because you start, you have to start with a, a blank state, a blank slate, and a kind of open, free mind. But once you say no, you can't go there, you can't go there, you can't go there. You think, well, hang on. Uh, 
where can I go? Is, will this be okay? Because a lot of the trouble you get in, and I've been censored a lot over in my, in my experience, my time as a cartoonist, I've been censored, I've had trouble with editors, I've been in court a couple of times, all part of the job, and, um, and I'm, I'm used to it, but it always, it's always by accident, you stumble into offence. You think, you think, oh, this cartoon is good natured, this, this thing you're making, this will make people think or give a little laugh. No. Sometimes you suddenly, it's a, land, it's a landmine, you've stood on something. So often it's quite by accident you find yourself in court. You get carried away. Artists do. They create. And when you, you don't want supervision. And I do. You have to abide by some sense of decency and you get to understand what is beyond the pale. But um, beyond the pale... I think it was an Irish term, wasn't it? The pale was that line where the British occupied in there and beyond that was beyond the pale and that's where the, the Irishmen, you know, had their culture. So, um, so it's always an, a fine line that you tread and that's the fun of it too. Ron Tanberg was a fellow cartoonist I work with, next desk. He um, he loved it too. We we had great fun together, going close to the line. But as I say, I think in goodwill and with some sense of some sense of civic responsibility. You don't you weren't there to be outrageous or notorious. But um, you know, stuff happens. What, did you want to say something? Uh, someone wants to ask me about me and my sister Mary. Um, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> my sister Mary. I'll be honest and say my sister Mary has become a bit of a heartache to me and someone I have lost contact with. Um, we all had a lovely early childhood. We were all very close. My family was close, sort of working class family. My father was a meat worker. Worked in the slaughteryards, you know. Um, we had a good start, and that, that that mattered. So, when people, I don't know, we probably all have experience of family going pear-shaped here or there or everywhere, or sadnesses, and you know, we we think because we are from the same family that we're all made of the same fabric but we're not in my experience but it takes a long time for that to emerge often when people get married siblings one marries this way one marries that way and new things develop so there's been a lot of that and and not not real conflict but you just have, and it's a sadness. This is a great sadness to see a family that can still have a decency and a 
understanding and a tolerance within it, bear with each other's difference, is a great achievement, I think. And um, I think that is the great achievement in life, is not to bear with each other's difference. And, um, and that's where humour can be great. I think when humour starts to die, a lot of things start to die. Yes. Will I run out of material? Yeah, um, the human condition. Well, in all of human history, no one's ever run out of condition, uh, out of uh, 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 sort of material. I mean, it's an old tradition. It happens around everyone's kitchen table, more or less, or dining table. You know, I think it's a healthy thing, of course. And it's scratching our head and saying, "What are these? Who are these humans? They're so bizarre." And every now and again you give up and you say, look, it's terrible. They're, they're impossible. And, and in this time in history, it seems to me there's a lot of people getting down in, a, in quiet despair about what goes on and what's become of our culture and all this culture or that culture. And we, we can fret about it. And, and we do. And... And I made a point yesterday about the final book by Carl Jung, the psychoanalyst Carl Jung. His final book was uh, The Undiscovered Self. He makes this point. uh, He came to the view rather reluctantly or sadly that about two-thirds of humanity was not really well. (laughs) You know, they perform wellness and proclaim to be, and I think, I forget his exact words, but I think he also said could not be relied upon when things get rough in, you know, politically or whatever. And and I, I was at a psychoanalytic conference in Sydney a couple of years ago, speaking to to some psychoanalysts, and I said, look, what do you think of this theory of Jung that two-thirds of humanity is, you know, flaky? And uh, (laughs) and and these people said, oh, we think he was very optimistic. (laughs) 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 We we talk of the 80-20 principle. (laughs) And every... my mind often goes to that point as a way of understanding. And I mean, I know it's a way of dismissing people and saying, oh, you're mad. Or no, not it's maybe not as extreme as that. But sort of to accept something like that is not easy. And to, and to just grab at it and say, no, that's, I'm on the good guy's side and those people are all <laughs> peculiar <laughs> or unwell. But, you know, long weekend in um, Port Ferry, you wander the streets for a while, the eighty twenty principle starts to emerge. There's a couple of hands going up there. See, I'll get and then I'll do the yes. We're doing. Sorry, I can't quite understand the question. I might know whether it's. I mean, 
Oh, yes. Yes. Of him. Well, I, I wasn't interested much in Donald Trump as being a hate object because, I mean, all American presidents are pretty weird if you really look into it. And um, they've done some bizarre things. And so, but I'm more interested in, well, a principle I often wor worked on was um, what is our part in this? And you're not meant to do that. You're meant to keep poking fun at the leaders. Yes, that's important. But what is our part in this? And I think that's an old philosophic question. Um, and I'm very interested in that. Well, why, why do we do what we do? Or as there's a lovely saying by an old early monk, medieval sort of person, Thomas Akempis, who said, as often as I have been amongst men, I have returned home a lesser man. <laughs> Which is, uh, you know, that, oh dear, going home to humanity. So, so that's what all, uh, that's what Carl Jung was on about. Who are we? What, what, are, what is our part in the condition of our culture and our political state? Is it just ScoMo's fault or... Whoever, whoever. And it's so easy and it's so important to scrutinise the political process constantly, obviously, but it becomes a sort of a hate fest too easily and then you drift off the, away from the truth and then, you know, they're the good guys and they're the bad guys and it's that unintegrated mentality where there's the good guys and the bad guys. And, but we love that and all our sporting codes are about that, you know. Yeah, the baddies, it's tri the tribalism of us all to some degree. And to integrate and to hold the two together is obviously the most difficult work in understanding uh, what all the great philosophers have tried to understand. And probably all the great mums and dads and aunties and uncles, you know, it's. I think it's a mature thing to do. But I don't know that... Maturity is greatly, sort of has a good reputation in Australia. Um, uh, I don't want to slag off at Australia too much because, you know, once you start, you can't stop. But, <laughs> but, but it's a healthy thing to be self-aware you know, self and also of goodwill and, you know, a bit eager to go on with it all to go on with it all. How do you do that? Yes, thank you. Oh, the, oh sorry, yes, oh, that one, and then back to you. Yeah, yes. How does a person of that age grow a social conscience? Was it? Well, I, I don't know, I, th I think... I would have the view that a sense of fairness, for instance, which is the essence of a social conscience, a sense of fairness is innate, in my view. Um, we are born... You watch little ones, and there's a lot to be learned in watching the little ones, and we've all done it, I guess. 
they often know when something is unfair and not right. They have a sense of right and wrong, even though they can be wicked and naughty little things in the most healthy way, I think, are mostly, they have this really deep sense of, and somewhere, I mean, maybe that's optimistic to think of humanity as being innately uh, concerned, having a conscience. I mean, what is this thing called conscience? Where does it live? Where's the science in that? Well, I, I think it's greatly important. It lies at the heart, you know. What, what, what do you learn social conscience, or do you just? You can have it encouraged and and endorsed by your culture, and I don't, I'm not sure. Are we endorsing the idea of conscience? Um, depends who you are and where you live and what you have to witness. I I would think contemporary materialism can override the consumer society. I don't know. We're so grandiose now compared to the Australia I remember in the 1950s where I lived and what I saw was much more modest. It wasn't so grand and affluent, I guess. But it was, I think, every bit as... From my perspective, it seemed to be healthy in a, in a certain way too. It was, there was happiness was there. Um, but we've, we're on this course towards... I'm, it's Sunday and I'm giving a sermon. This is strange. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, well, Lisa, this is the stuff of which underlies a lot of humour and a lot of cartooning. Uh, it, it gets very serious and it's... it's it is lonely. It is a lonely occupation. You, it's just you and the pen and the piece of paper. So, social conscience is, I think, there. I don't think it's highly praised. Does the Australian of the Year be awarded to the person with who has demonstrated social conscience? Well, I'm not in favour much of all something of the year or. I don't get a lot of that. Um, I don't understand it. Apparently we need it. Don't know what for, but... So, yes, but I, I, I made a mess of that, but... Um, can, can I ask... Uh, and those were? Yeah. Yes, yes. Yes. <laughs> oh. Yeah, if I think of that, I'll get a bit depressed. But um, <laughs> I was born in East Melbourne. Um, but I've never identified with, you know, Dan's. We are proud with Dan. What did Dan? Hang on, I'm getting to the age where I've forgotten the Premier's second name. <laughs> you know, we're proud Victorians. I, I just don't relate to those things. And and I don't know who anyone who does that I'm aware of, but um, I, I'm lost in my thoughts. But just remind me... Yes. Yeah. 
Well, oh, well, that would just be a fact of exposure and they get used to things. But I think it does go to some extent. I recognise that I'm a, a really small um, boutique sort of cartoonist, if you like. Not deliberately. That's just who I am. And, and I don't do the enter rewards and all that sort of stuff. It just doesn't sit well with me. But but it does transcend. It goes abroad and it's, you know, and I console myself and say, oh, well, it's the 80-20 principle. <laughs> That's what I can do. But I, I, I don't actually rely on that. But, no, it, I'm always amazed by the extent to which it turns up in America and England and... Japan and often some, which so uh, what's that? Adelaide. Adelaide, yeah. So so like the what any artist does or any philosopher, they take a universal view. They're not local in a way. They 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 feel uh, a universal sensibility, and it's very accurate. The deeper you go. Um, that is, or the other thing, what is most personal is most universal. So I've, my cartooning has been fairly personal, I guess, which was po possibly I was departed from the traditions of cartooning um, and was not so focused on the, pro uh, the political game, like it's some cricket match which you're a commentator on. You're curious about why us humans do that. Why war? Why violence? And there's a lot of humour, of course, in all that. It's not all grave and earnest. But So that's been my tendency. And then to be personal, where do you learn to make a cartoon? Well, you learn from going inside yourself and, and being connected and feeling a genuine civic connection to your fellow creatures in your world and, and wanting to touch them, you know... To be touched, or to know them, or to be known by them, we all have that. We all, um, and and that's an old tradition. That's what the artists have done, the poets, all manner of the philosophers. They're share. They're trying to get. They're trying to share something. And I think that's entirely healthy and incredibly interesting. And that's what the musicians are doing, in a sense. I envy the musicians so much because no one ever hears their music and says, what does that mean? They, you just hear it. It goes in. And you don't have to be informed or clever, the cult of cleverness. You don't have to be clever. It touches you and you... Uh, just as entitled and capable as the next person to be re really moved by Bach or Elvis Presley, if you so please. But um, and I, I I I love that that freedom. <laughs> and and um, but to be in this kind of morass, this tangle of human anger and emotion, which is the world of the reader. or it, it, It's not a nice place to work sometimes. So you've got to be a little devil may care and, and a little uh, 
Yeah, it's, uh, and, not, and that's, uh, that's where a little working class background helps, I think, because I came... I didn't know of artists in my upbringing. We didn't have... We didn't know of artist or art in the 1950s in Footscray. Well, yeah, you hear the word, but we didn't know anybody who was such a thing. And, um, and there was, it wasn't a philistine rejection of it, it just didn't, we didn't know. And so that was a fantastic background f to become an artist because there's nothing, there's no precedent, there's nothing ho hovering over your head, something you've got to live up to, someone you've got to be as good as. You just feel it's natural to make a kind of art, and I don't mean that in a very snooty, exclusive way. I mean just that lovely thing called creativity, which children do like little geniuses. And I came to the view that we're all obviously born with natural genius. But it's that even that word has been elevated too. But to me, creativity is our one of our chances. And whether that be creativity in the kitchen or in the garden or in your friendships and your relationships or in something you create and make that never before existed, you can make the simplest little drawing and someone will say, well, what's, that's not a big deal. And you say, yeah, but it never ever existed ever before. And it didn't, you know, so... To, to be able to take genuine consolation and happiness in making something, bring something into being, is a very, it's, it's you know, there's a lot of talk, what are we looking for? What do we want? What's going to make us happy? I think that's one of the things, and you and I want to just tell you, I'll come to you, yeah, but um, I, I, I often go into this idea, and it's appropriate, to being in this town uh, because of the Celtic references. Uh, and as ch children, as, as a child, you know, I grew up with an idea of fairies and pixies and little beings that were amongst the flowers and we would make, um, we would make fairy gardens just when we were really young make, and you make take a lot of trouble to make this little thing in the garden with petals and leaves and little rocks and, and you get very engrossed in it and you believe it and there's a great sincerity in that and eagerness and, and innocence, I guess. And then you go to bed that night and all excited, get up in the morning, come out and look. Yes, the fairies have visited. You can see the marks where they've been. And... Uh, uh, one day it dawned on me that this was the exact metaphor for the creative process, that you create something in the belief of some some otherworldliness, you know. These little pixies are not of our world. These are magical. So you've got to be like that to, be, to create well or happily. And there's such happiness in watching a child do that. I don't know whether they still do it. They're probably on their phones all day. But they could be. I don't necessarily believe that. But so, and and just as that was innocent, I have this strong conviction that we are capable of something I call mature innocence. That in maturity, we can retain and hold on to that really blessed state of not being so tied to the politics and the economics and the fashions and that. Where is there? There still is the capacity 
to create with love. And I think that's what it is. The child is creating with love. And, and I think the artist, if they're a true artist, is creating with love. That very embarrassing word to a lot of our culture and worth examining it again and again and more deeply and more deeply. Because without it, why do we, why, what are we living for? For a bigger, for brighter car, or etc. etc. you know. But who said, I don't believe in God? And, and there's a question. <laughs> no, 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 it's a, it's a yes, also, you're... you're I understand the sense in which you say that. No, no, I, I'm also fascinated with what do we mean when we say God? Or some a friend of mine said, what sort of God is it that you don't believe in? And they think, is it necessary to know? Is it, is it a word that needs examining too? And it might be that sort of idea of God, but it might refer to something. What did J.S. Bach refer to when... He spoke of God, or Mozart. It, was it was he, were, were these people just primitives who, who were sort of full of superstition? And no, they they had maybe it's a sense of something which is not being like me or you. It might just refer to something which I don't understand fully, and they can't speak. And and it's not. So, I don't. I'm not frightened of the word. It's. My generation became very phobic about the word, <laughs> really phobic. And I think, well, just relax. You don't have to believe it or not believe it. You can just allow it to be there and and it's not so menacing. And yes, terrible things done in the name of God and money and love and terrible things. So what do we do? Just relax a bit. Oh, some t oh, now, was there someone else? Yes. 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 And seventies, yeah. No. And some of them weren't acceptable back then. As <laughs> but at least I didn't, I wasn't totally destroyed by, you know, being convicted. Yes. No, well, where's it going? I mean, maybe it's like a passing, a wet type of weather that we're experiencing at the moment and maybe it blows away. But oh, I'd like to think so. But it, it, I do lament that... Um, so many, there are so many offended people. I think these lives must be so unhappy that they can't just flick it off and say, oh, well, you know, that's how it goes. Uh, and people talk about how outraged and hurt and um, 
hurt and uh, sort of destroyed by some joke. Frankly, I don't quite believe a lot of these stories. And I mean, of course, we must be careful with not hurting people with humour. You know, some people deliberately hurt with humour and that's been a development in some sort of humour. There's been a very bitter and sort of humour to humiliate and deliberately and being, you know, witty. Wit is not necessarily truth. And, and I think I've seen that's become a popular form of humour. The comedy festival, etc. you can find lots of that. A lot of put-downs and mocking and snide kind of humour gets very rewarded. And I think, well, what does that say about our culture? And, uh, I, I mean, humour must can't get too goody-goody, but uh, when it's deliberately just diminishing people or groups or... And, you know, the poor Prime Minister, whoever the Prime Minister is, is just a soft target. And, yeah, it should be under criticism or observation, but, gee, go easy, not too hard. And reading the comments section in the newspaper, oh, my God, it's the trolls, you know, this thing of the trolling, negative, brutal, hurtful thing. But, but you'll make a point, there is this thing... Of, you know, the woke thing, the cancel culture. I mean, I've been cancelled all my life. And you do recover from cancelling. And you to be pointed at, named, slandered, easy. It's so easy. And if you're in the public eye, you're a target. That's just a fact. And, and it, I don't like it, obviously, because I've had 50 years of it. And it was fun when I was young and... I, draft resistor and those sort of things and didn't like, want the Vietnam War, opposed the Iraq War in my work. Um, yeah, there's a lot of hostility comes out of the woodwork, particularly in times of war. In the Iraq War was particularly bad, what the mail I received. Uh, you know, there was the famous death threat thing. Uh, just a subtle, not too subtle warning. Be careful, and um, and I told I'll tell you this story. There was a moment when um, I I'll tell you Les Tanner was a an old senior cartoonist at the age, and I used to when I worked in that building when people worked in a building and you know had a a lively journalistic kind of conversation running all the time, full of naughtiness and daring. I used to go and see Les in the morning to have a cup of coffee with him, discuss the news of the day. I called in at his office uh, and he was opening his mail and he opened this uh, manila, uh, manila envelope and he said, oh, what's this? And I looked in and I could see wires, electrical wires. I saw a butane gas cylinder, the type to fill cigarette lighters and a few little elastic bands and things going on. And I said, oh, Les, let's just don't touch. 
just let's step back and call security. Security came up, dismissed the whole problem, said no, and we told security to get out. And we rang the police, and they came and knew straight away. And they rang a, the army bomb squad, and it was a letter bomb. And and um, as the army guy said to us, he said, this might not have killed you, but it would have blown your hands and your face off. Now, back then, or it will probably be now too, there was a code that you don't publicise such things, just as the... The, there were codes about mentioning suicide and things like that. But so there was no mention made in the media about that, a very serious incident. So that's not about the danger of being a cartoonist. That's about there are strange people out there who are very disturbed, sometimes psychotic or whatever. So you get enough of these very serious moments along the way if you're dealing with the public and and it makes life very interesting <laughs> but it's probably very distracting from the joys of life hmm. but political correctness see if, if people get too touchy about what you can say and what you can't say it can go down a very dark road it can Yes. The internet. Yes. Yes, and who understands the impact? Because I get the feeling we're in the midst of a huge experiment, not a deliberate experiment, but that's in fact what is happening. We are kind of guinea pigs. And um, we don't understand what that is doing to our consciousness. And uh, yeah, I feel very sort of unhappy about it. But then I feel unhappy about a lot of. I feel unhappy about the traffic. <laughs> I feel unhappy about the overdevelopment. And, you know, it's just normal. And I think it's sad that we have to live with so much sort of dread about what's going on that we don't understand. You know, we hope to goodness that people have their own world, which is not of this world, that world, and where they can resource themselves and console themselves and come close to each other because all, each other is all we have at the end of the day, you know. So, Yes. Do I get less negative feedback because of the nature of my work is sort of touches people and things like that? Look, I think yes. I, I think I get a lot of um, very intimate sort of, uh, um, what do you call it, you know, appreciation. And that 
that matters. I'm not entirely dependent on it. I work alone. I don't move in journalistic circles anymore where everyone's patting each other on the back and revving each other up. I'm, it's, it's a loner's job. It's, a, it's for a loner. So you tend to be more vulnerable and also a cartoonist is in a newspaper, not part of it somehow. They're meant to be the outsider. They're meant to be... Um, uh, you know, the, the child who says the emperor's got new clothes or, or the holy fool or the village idiot or whatever you want to call it, that our, our culture has always valued that voice that can be wrong eight times out of ten, but the two times they've got it right are very valuable. So, um, so... I yes, I do, and so this is how I get to know my world I'm speaking to, because the world I speak to is just an imagined world, and it's based on all the decent, all the, all the kind of people I met all through my life, or in, a, in a, an occasion like this, that you need to come amongst people, or strangers who stop you on the street and want to talk about things as strangers do. Uh, and that's really precious. That's why that I rather that than going to the internet to find out what people are. And there's an abundance of human connection for us all, as you know, if we dare to exercise it and look after it. Because as I'm saying, I think in the face of the world, or as Gandhi said, uh, with what we are faced with, it's likely that whatever we'll, we do will be of no consequence. But it's absolutely essential to do it, whatever. So, and, and so there's always this lovely thing of people connecting to each other. And you talk about positive appreciation. Yeah, that's part of a great thing that people do to each other, don't they? We, I hope they do. Whether you, they're talking to some guy who's in the public eye or... Anybody, and a lot of that goes on. That's what I call the literature of you and me. And still, you know, a bit wet and corny these days to say something like that. But, um, but there is this lovely thing we must we take for granted sometimes. You know how precious it is, how precious we are to each other, and the stranger, and all that. Because I don't think the media seems to care they're all into sort of celebrities so much and you know offending politicians and sports stars and big shiny cars you think oh come on why so grandiose and fast what happened to the humble human sensibility and the way people are very good at being with each other uh, you've got to keep on with that and yeah this talk gets um Earnest, maybe. But that underlies a lot of humour. You have to... Sometimes people who've been through hell on a stick make the best jokes, yes. You're ready for Mr Crowley. Sorry? You're ready for Mr Crowley. Okay, I hear you. Thank you. Yeah, to create Mr Curly. I mean, imagine making Mr Curly jokes and ducks and you're handing it into an editor who's a tough um, political... You know, ex-war correspondent, and and they go, ah, what? And and this was a great moment in my life when I first drew a duck, 
and there were some very sad things that happened in Vietnam that day where some of my friends were had been conscripted. I was conscripted too. And they discovered I was deaf in one ear. You probably noticed that I, I was born deaf in one ear, totally. But, um, yeah, so bad things had happened in Vietnam that previous day. And I made a cut. I couldn't. I was so disturbed about it. It was a minefield disaster. And um, I made a joke about a duck for the first time. I was... I just, you know, had a meltdown <laughs> or something, a very quiet one. And and I um, I put it on on 9.30 in the morning, the deadline. I went and put it on his desk and he looked at it and he said, Michael, I don't understand this. Oh, dear. And then he said, but I like it. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Think, you know, we'll put it in. And, and that's been a guiding principle sometimes it doesn't matter if you understand it. And like another incident was where a fella came up to me at a writer's festival somewhere. His his wife, or his partner, had been saying, oh, she loved my work. And he was a bit put out by this, I think. He, she was fussing too much anyway. And he said, listen, yes, all, all very well, but I, I don't get your work. And I said, oh, yeah. I said, that's fine. And he said... For instance, I have a piece of yours, a cartoon of yours, on my notice board at work. And I've had it there for five years and I still don't get it. And I, and I thought, yeah, but it's still there. <laughs> and, and it's that thing. To make a little mystery, a very nourishing mystery, is a very valuable thing in my view. And a lot of other cartoonists would say, look, you're letting down the whole tradition. You're going to nail it. You know, you've got to nail the Prime Minister. I said, no, I don't want to nail things. I want to pull the nails out. And and so that's been just my personal approach. And so I don't mind if people don't get it. Some Often I don't get it. And often it's really bad. But, I mean, the piece of work is a bit of a dud. But, um, but sometimes I don't mind because sometimes it just speaks to a part of us. That's... There's a lot of poetries like that, or a song. You listen to song lyrics, they're sometimes quite peculiar, and I think we love that. We need that a bit, as long as it's made with a genuine heart, you know, as long as it's made with sincerity, in a, even in a sort of creative delusion that it, that it's somehow, you're getting at something deeper, maybe, or higher, or something we don't yet understand, because the creative process brings out something that even we don't understand. And just briefly, maybe it's a finishing point, I don't know. I'll say this thing I've said many times before about this, this thing called the creative process. That sometimes, and there are no experts on this, um, sometimes I'll, in the night I'll get a bit of an idea and I think, oh, I've got tomorrow's cartoon, that's such a relief. There's a lot of anxiety to live within deadlines, you know. It's not called a deadline for nothing. <laughs> the word, there's a lot of death in it, but um, I've got an idea. Yes, yes. So next day you get to your paper and your pen and off you go and you're drawing it there. And then you look at it and you think, yes, all very well, but it's sort of something's missing. You know, it doesn't... It needs something else. It's, it doesn't translate from the brain 
to the paper. So off you go and you try and sort it out and make it. But the more you sort it out and change it, the worse it gets. This can happen. And I'm, I'm describing a process that can happen and has frequently happened. And, and you get in a mess. And it gets getting worse and worse and the clock is ticking and, and then... You say, this is awful. What, did, why, what was going through my head to think that this was going to be an idea? I am a fraud and hopeless and I'm a pathetic human being. You know, you go, you descend, you, you uh, regress into a kind of an infantile state. And it's important to understand, no one would know, looking at you, you know, you look composed. But inside you think, I can't do this. This I, Everyone else can do this much better than me. And so, and then I've learned to understand that what I'm doing in this self-criticism is destroying my ego. My ego is crumbling, whether I like it or not. And all that ambition to make the great cartoon is now in ruins. And now, so therefore, I'm arriving at the perfect creative state. Well, the ego is a bit irrelevant and so now you're free you're like a child and you can play a bit in the mess because it's all lost anyway you can't get much worse so you start mucking around a bit you know and loosening up and it's coming from somewhere else and and then you you start recognizing things that might be interesting so you've been it's a funny process it's not a reliable method but it in retrospect, it's something that does happen. And so to get at a very lovely original thing can sometimes take going through hell. As I said someone, I heard someone say recently, I never trust a man unless I know he's been to hell and back. <laughs> and I think there's some truth in that. And so in the creative process, unfortunately, if only there was a gift from God or, you know the devil anyway <laughs> but it's not often like that you have to to make the simplest thing is sometimes the most strangely difficult thing and uh, as the buddhists say you know simplicity is not easy yeah so and also Lao Tzu true art does not look like art I'm a great believer in that yeah is there anyone who wants to denounce me or be of <laughs> be offended or something? I'm happy to hear you, and but otherwise we can go out and cheer up. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much. I do appreciate you being here, and um, I hope we're all a bit. Oh no, we're a bit older at the end of all this, aren't we? <laughs> Yeah, so thanks and um, whatever. So. I, I, I've, been, I've been upstaged by this chair. I, I, d I dare not sit in it, but what a great, what a magnificent chair. And I've been upstaged. I, I, do you want me to? I, I will. I think I need to sit in it. <laughs> oh, well. Yes, it is. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, thank you. All right.